This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. On today's program, we spend the hour looking at education during the pandemic. A new National Education Association, or NEA, survey has revealed the depth of the crisis in education with system-wide pressures on teachers, support staff, students, and their families, all seeking an educative environment that provides safety and stability. The survey reveals exhaustion, burnout, and an alarming number of educators leaving the profession they have loved. We're fortunate to have with us today an incredible group representing preschool, elementary, and secondary teachers, a school counselor dealing with the mental health issues of students, teachers, staff, and parents. We begin with Arlene Inouye, UTLA Secretary, that's the United Teachers of Los Angeles. She's also the bargaining chair. And then we bring in elementary educational specialist Georgia Flowers Lee, who teaches three to five-year-olds, Hector Perez Roman, who teaches high school AP world history in Arlita, and Belinda Baragan, LAUSD PSA counselor, and that is the pupil student attendance counselor. She works with the mental health issues of students and their families, as well as teachers and staff, all dealing with the trauma of the pandemic. We'll get their stories as well as what kind of solutions they think can address their concerns that give us hope. All this when our program returns in just a moment. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman and really pleased today at the panel that we're going to bring that's addressing education in the pandemic and some of the issues that have that are not just for the education sector of labor, but are very specific to it. And that's caused by a recent NEA survey of members' opinions, that's the National Education Association, on key issues facing public education during the pandemic, and it shows that the massive staff shortages in America's public schools are leaving educators increasingly exhausted and burned out, and an alarming 55% of them are now indicating that they're ready to leave the profession that they love earlier than they planned. Now, school shortages are not new. They existed before the pandemic, but now there's an unprecedented crisis in staffing across every job category. And that prevents teachers and students and uh, families from getting the kind of you know, educational experience that they hope and that they need. Labor shortages, as I mentioned, are common right now across the board. And we've addressed them on this show. And we've looked at the big quit and we've looked at other ways that uh, workers have had to rearrange their life because of COVID. We have now passed as of this week, 900,000 deaths in the United States due to COVID and 80,000 in California. And on top of that, the very popular Build Back Better solution has stalled in Congress. Workers have often discovered that as much as they love their work, if they do, too often work doesn't love them back. So they're thinking about rethinking their lives and seeking other options. And plus the CARES Act 
that was passed at the beginning of the pandemic showed a lot of people what government could do, and it designated care as infrastructure. So in the education sector, these shortages have grown in the past two years and now include critical staff. And that also includes bus drivers and school nurses and food service workers. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, there are currently 567,000 fewer educators in America's public schools than there were before the pandemic. The NEA is calling this a five alarm crisis, and they're saying we're facing an exodus as more than half of our nation's teachers and other staff are now indicating they're going to leave education faster or sooner than planned. So this is system wide pressure on teachers and the crisis for education requires immediate solutions. We have an incredible group today with us that are representing preschool, elementary, secondary teachers, a school counselor dealing with mental health issues of students, teachers, staff, and parents. And we're beginning it all with UTLA Secretary Arlene Inouye, and then an elementary education specialist currently teaching three to five-year-olds, Georgia Flowers-Lee, high school teacher Hector Perez-Roman, and PSA Pupil Student Attendance Counselor Belinda Barragan. And they're all going to address the trauma of the pandemic on students and staff. I hope I got all your names right. We'll get to it closer to the time. But Arlene, welcome back to the show. Arlene is with us. She's a UTLA secretary and bargaining chair, speech and language specialist in the LAUSD for over 20 years. She's here to give us the big picture of the crisis imposed by COVID, including dealing with suddenly worse but pre-existing staff shortages, as I said. And we're going to ask her what the impact has been on on teaching and working conditions, including all sectors, students, parents, teachers, and how the UTLA has addressed these conditions and concerns, including issues that may sound not so important, like ventilation, classroom size, and all kinds of mitigation and other efforts that address the overall issue of teacher burnout. And on top of that, as we too often see the victimization of teachers' unions, because they're trying to address the crisis. And we'll probably also touch on the ongoing funding issues. So with all of that, Arlene, Inouye, welcome to Jacobin Radio. Thank you so much, Susie. It's really good to be back with you. And yes, that was a lot for an introduction to deal with. But we're going to address all of that in one way or another. The alarming national statistics from NEA that you cited 55% of public school educators are leaving the profession, and this is a profession they love, and it is because our teachers and educators, as you know, they don't go into this job for money. They go because they love children and students. They love seeing the light in kids, a sparkle as they learn how to read, as they grasp concepts. They love the relationships with their students. So this is really, really difficult knowing that this crisis is existing. I want to state that this is not just because of the pandemic, that this existed before. And educators are severely underpaid. So for example, you know, we're all in Los Angeles. We're in the second largest teachers union in the country. We have 35,000 members. Our members include pre-kindergarten, we have infants, all the way up to adults, and we have special needs students. We also have health and human service professionals, itinerant substitutes, 
and K through 12 teachers. So we have a broad group of educators working in LA Unified and our teachers who have a BA get 30% less than the average BA holder in Los Angeles. So we have many teachers who have taken second jobs, even third jobs, just for their expenses, for their rent and to make ends meet. So it has always been challenging. It's an underpaid, devalued profession. And it's a caring profession, predominantly female. We have 72% female in LA Unified. And I think that's part of the problem, right? There's an issue of disrespect, and they could share possibly about that disrespect in terms of we have bully principles, what we call bully principles sometimes with these mandates. Uh, sometimes the district can be very difficult as well. So there's um, so many factors that weigh into the situation we have. And the fact that public education now has become our social safety net. Mm. We lack so much in terms of the public infrastructure so that so much falls on our teachers and educators. They are the counselors. They provide the meals. They provide any support with their own money. The average teacher spends $1,000, you know, in providing a backpack or pencils for students. It can go on and on the role of our educators and the role that they play before the pandemic, but then now is exacerbated because of a public health crisis that has affected our whole nation. And I want to just say that I'm so proud of our educators because of their resilience during this very, very difficult time. I mean, they've had to adjust like five times. You know, first we shut down schools and then we had to all learn how to work online, right? That became the (laughs) education. And then we had a hybrid online and in person with some optional programs. And then we opened up our schools with all of the layers of mitigation that we were able to negotiate, which I'm really proud that we have the gold standard in health and safety. But still, that adjustment of working during a pandemic And then we had the Omicron recently after the winter recess. And because we had an infrastructure, we were equipped to deal with it, although it placed a huge strain on educators regarding taking on additional students, regarding their own safety concerns and their own having family members who may have had Mm -hmm. having COVID. Yeah. So as you can see, There's so many issues that our educators have been dealing with, but they are in in the pandemic now. And let's just let them share about what they're experiencing and what the situation is in the present. There's one thing that you said, Arlene, just before we go to everybody, maybe you want to think about it because I teach as well, but at the college level and everybody, as you said, had to quickly learn how to do Zoom teaching much, much harder. I know I have a grandson, little kids just tune out. But then in the first instance, when there was this rush to open up because people didn't have childcare, because they wanted the economy to go again, I saw examples of teachers trying to do something called hybrid. And I just sit back in wonderment at how any teacher could manage that with little kids who are, or any age really, and divided attention. And I just wanted to underscore what Arlene said, that I, you know, the teachers are the heroes in all of this. 
And of course, we'll get to the stories now that also point to teachers are the heroes, the staff is the hero, and they aren't appreciated. <laughs> they need to be paid a lot more money. Last thing I was going to say is my little grandson has a placard that he takes to all the demonstrations at age six and says, pay teachers, and he crosses out more and said, the most. But let's move now to Georgia, who's joining us. Georgia Flowers Lee teaches in the elementary area. She's an education specialist, currently teaching preschoolers. So three to five-year-olds with a variety of special education eligibilities. And I'm assuming that, that that really is difficult. And she's been teaching for 20 years with students with special needs at Saturn Elementary Arts and Media Magnet in the LAUSD. So, Georgia, welcome to the show. Maybe you can begin by just sharing with our listeners the impact you're seeing on elementary and the youngest of kids. Absolutely. So my students, I can get them on their third birthday. Well, with the current students, they have had almost no intervention. So we are literally beginning from ground zero with these babies because they have not had the opportunity. And we have to remind ourselves as we do this that these kids have spent half their lives locked in the house with whoever their caregivers are because they were born right before the pandemic hit. So they have not had experiences. They haven't had opportunities to have any hands-on learning. And so they come to us. And again, I have kids on a spectrum of eligibilities from kids who have minor speech uh, delays to kids who are heavily impacted. And so here they are. And now it's on us to not only make sure that they're getting what they need, that their needs are being met, that they're learning how to play, that they're learning how to engage socially. But also, we have to teach these babies how to keep a mask up because we want to be safe. So it is a very interesting environment to spend your day. And the kids surprise and amaze us constantly because they have learned how to do this. But it's, it's constant reminders. It's constant redirection that you must do this. And then occasionally they just say enough is enough. And they don't want to do it anymore. And then we have to be imaginative in how we approach it. Because, again, you're dealing with very tiny human beings. And can um, I ask you just, just to interject? But, you know, you mentioned that these kids are pandemic kids. These are kids who grew up in a world that the normal world for them is the world of the pandemic. So I just wonder, since they obviously will see people with masks outside, do they think of that as something that they want to do because that's what everyone they see on the street has on? (laughs) That's part of our teaching is pointing out that everyone's doing it. And imitation is how our kids learn. And so we say, you know, I've got a teddy bear with a mask on in my classroom for folks who may be a little more resistant. So this is how we get them to that point. But again, because this is the only world they've known for most of our kids, parents have had to do it. They've already turned to, if they're going out the house, they are going into public places, they've had to learn how to wear a mask. So for most of our kids, it is simply the norm and that is what they do. 
But I heard you mention the hybrid teaching. I'd love to share just a little bit about what that's like in a preschool classroom. So I went back when schools reopened in the spring of last year. I was the only preschool teacher who returned. So I had all the returning kids in my room. And then I switched after those kids went home because we have a four and a half hour day. And, you know, it was shortened at that point. But once they went home, then we took a quick break. And then we went online with the kids who weren't returning. It rapidly reached a point where we understood that this couldn't work. We were exhausted. I have two TAs in my room and they're fantastic. But I had to get a coffee pot because after the first group went home, we had to prep ourselves for the second group. And so I finally approached my administrator and said, this is not sustainable. And he was flexible enough that he allowed me to simply take all the returning kids and then hand over the Zoom kids to the teachers who were working from home. And so that was the only way it was manageable. But I know that didn't happen for everyone. I cannot stress the exhaustion of Zoom, but I will leave that alone. And then just switch to a little bit of how things have been. Arlene mentioned that LA Unified really has been the gold standard because we pushed for it to be the gold standard with health and safety. But small children don't necessarily understand and or follow all the rules. And for my classroom mm-hmm. in particular, and all preschool classes, proximity is, is a must. Mm-hmm. We're doing hand-over-hand teaching. We're changing diapers. Six-foot distancing is just not possible. So since we returned from windbreak, my entire class has now been quarantined twice. Does that mean that you take five days off, everyone, or what? So because we're early childhood, all my students who cannot be vaccinated should quarantine for 10 days. Yeah, parents were not happy. And I understood their unhappiness. The disruption in their lives, it leaves parents in a space that that they just cannot manage. And so we have had to be flexible. You know, staff is still on campus because we are all fully vaccinated. And so we had to figure out ways to help our parents because we realized the stress and the trauma that they're living with and the constant disruptions, particularly for our working parents. We could not turn a blind eye. So we, we accommodated, we did what we could. And now on Thursday, for the first time, I had my entire class back on campus. And, you know, it was tough because it had been a long time since we had the entire crew. But it was wonderful to have everyone back. So, so I'm really glad that you've included the entire community. The difficulty it means for parents I mean, imagine. And also, I imagine for keeping teachers in this kind of rolling, yes, you're here, then you're quarantined, then you're not, and then somebody in their household is sick. I mean, it's it's hard on everyone. Yeah, it's a constant checking in to see, okay, who's here right now and who's out? And what does that mean for the rest of the campus? Or coordinators or out-of-classroom personnel have had to cover classes because we simply can't get a substitute. But they also have a full day's work to do. It's not like, you know, they were sitting around doing nothing. So now they're covering a class and then they get to go do the work. (laughs) They get to do their job. 
And it's been very, very, very difficult on them. And if your class is quarantined, you may be pulled to cover another class, an unfamiliar grade level, but you're still having to check in with your kids and manage it. So exhaustion is the word of the day. And because folks are just wiped out, people who maybe were not thinking about retirement or a change, a career change at this point, are now seriously giving it thought. And that's frightening. Wow. Well, I want to thank you for that. Let's move on and get the perspective from high school. And then we'll come back and talk about these as the program continues. But Hector Perez Roman is with us and he teaches 10th grade AP world history at Arlita High School. And he's an 11th grade advisor. He's taught for 18 years and is a national board certified teacher. I want to welcome you to the show, Hector. And let's just begin with getting your idea of the conditions that you're seeing. What's the impact of burnout, shortages, uneven policy on, you know, not just quarantine and not quarantine, but masking, mitigation on secondary students and the entire staff around you? Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me on the show. Yeah, just very uh, similar, just hearing Georgia speak and, and that experience and what Arlene said as well and kind of framing it up. It's, you know, you relive it like literally, you know, even though, you know, we just finished up our fourth week coming back from winter break. But yeah, just hearing what's happening and then looking at the little ones. And then now where I'm at, at the high school level, you definitely see all kinds of impacts on our community, on our students. One of which, you know, just in this last four weeks, something that I have never experienced in, you know, the 18 years I've taught is the attendance of students. And that also leads to Mm. what's going on with just trying to learn, trying to keep our kids afloat, even just with socialization skills as well at the high school level. Um, But this last four weeks since the winter, I have not had in any of my courses 100% attendance, you know, and I think that's really because, again, we have had high levels of COVID cases, of course, and that leads to, you know, at least five days of quarantine time. And then that, of course, you have different students coming in at different times. So it's really like a revolving door right now. And on top of that, it's not just students. We also have staff, other teachers, counselors, you name it, adults on campus that have also have experienced COVID and and some, you know, um, have to wait it out as well. And so that puts tremendous pressure on those folks that have been fortunate enough not to catch COVID at work and, you know, trying to do their best to teach, to catch up with kids that are coming in every day. You get some new kids that come in, you have a few that have been there for over a week and then like, bam, you know, they have COVID now. So now they're not there. So it's like, it's definitely been this semester, like no other, it's definitely been challenging. um, And it's just exhausted everyone because we have to cover so many classes, you know, Uh, and I was going to ask about that, because I know that there's, you know, there was always a shortage. And now I hear it's, it's really hard to get substitute teachers which presumably you would have had to rely on when people are out sick. But then the other issue I wondered, because you would presume that many of your students 
are vaccinated. And I, I see that in the LA Times now that they are going to allow educators access to the vaccination records of the students. But on the other hand, Omicron seems to break through a lot. So it gives, it gives you protection from death, but not from getting sick for a couple of weeks or less. So do the students cooperate on this? Or are you seeing because they're older and have a lot of ideas themselves that are probably developed or maybe not or reflect their parents? Do you see some of the polarization on issues like masking and protection and vaccination that we're seeing in the country at large? Yeah, you know, where I teach, Arlita High School, we have the neighborhoods of Arlita, Pacoima, and those particular neighborhoods were actually one of the hardest hit neighborhoods when it came to COVID rates, especially in uh, 2020 and even 2021. And so there was a lot of equity issues there, you know, exposure of this, the pandemic, right, led to like just healthcare access and things of that sort. But coming back to now, our community has been very resilient. And also when it comes to masking, for the most part at our school, kids are doing it. You know, you get one or two kids once in a while, you know, without their uh, mask on. But once you ask them like, hey, like put it on, they understand the severity uh, because many of them have experienced it firsthand themselves. Either they have caught COVID, their family members have, or the other thing that we're also dealing with is just the trauma of losing folks in our community through the pandemic, through COVID-19. So the seriousness of COVID-19 in our community is there. Folks understand it. Our kids understand it. And so we haven't had much of that pushback. You know, most of our kids, and again, we don't have that, you know, 100% data on this, but prior to LAUSD shifting on whether or not for this spring semester, having to be vaccinated to come back to school or not, most of our kids, based on what we saw, were vaccinated. And, you know, many kids did get the vaccine. Uh, Some of the things we've dealt with, too, is the idea of whether kids should make that decision, because there was uh, Mm -hmm. definitely some tension between some students wanting to get the vaccine and, you know, maybe parents not. So there was a little bit of that that we've seen as well. So, you know, I believe there's, you know, a state assembly bill that will be, um, it's a proposal. And there was actually a press conference at our school related to this, maybe allowing youth 12 or older or 13 and older to make that decision without parent consent. So, you know, we've had those conversations in our classroom. Um, I'm sure that you also, you know, this is teaching moment, as they say, you can explore philosophical and political issues and historical ones too, right? You teach AP history. It's not the first time there's been a pandemic, (laughs) but I can imagine that, that it provides for some rich classroom experiences, despite all the other obstacles, burnout and all the rest and fears and trauma, which we're going to get into with uh, Belinda next, but I'd like to hear maybe just a little bit more about, you know, maybe just some of the students and some of the issues that are brought up. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that kids definitely say though, is that you know, they, they want to feel protected at school. You know, they want to. And I think we, as in UTLA, did a really good job, again, the, that gold standard. I think folks feel really uh, safe at school. You know, it, it's probably one of the safest places in our community when it comes to the weekly testing of COVID-19. And so I think a lot of our students now, um, you know, it's just in the forefront of like how important it is to mask up and also you know, we at, at the high school level, we don't really like social distance as much. But one of the things that we definitely see, even in sports, kids wearing their masks as, as well. But there's been also what a lot of students I hear, too, from them is the lack of opportunities all right now, because, you know, things like sports or other extracurricular activities have been kind of, 
you know, as it is, sometimes they're underfunded. And so now there's things where kids can't go to certain sporting events or can't, you know, do certain clubs for limitations or, or staff not being able to be there. So um, we do get some of that as well, you know, but kids in the classroom, one of the things that they also tell me a lot is that sometimes they just, COVID-19 has really had such an impact on their education that sometimes they just feel really unmotivated and they, they'll, they'll be very honest and they mm-hmm. tell me, like, I'm not sure why. Perez, I don't know why I'm so unmotivated, but I just am. I don't want to be here sometimes. And it's just, I think that we need more of that trauma-informed teaching. And I, I don't think we've had enough of that training on that. And so I think sometimes, you know, because we just want to try our best as educators, we just kind of want to go back into like, just teach, teach, teach. Yeah. Instead of like, hey, why don't we actually connect with our kids, like socialize with our kids. Let's make sure that we actually are giving them the space to also be themselves within the classroom and then the school culture as well. And I think the other thing that I'm hearing from a lot of kids is just, you know, because some of them hadn't been in school for a little while, some of them not since middle school. Now they're coming to a high school and it's really for us, it's almost like reestablishing cultural learning environment again. And we're Mm -hmm. trying to get back into it without really like, allowing all the voices to be heard. So you do get a lot of that lack of motivation, but it, there's acknowledgement of it. So it's like a working through that process as we're learning the content and also just trying to heal from this constant trauma of what's going on in our communities. Thank you so much for all of that. And I think your approach is exactly right too, because we've all been down a rabbit hole, you know, and, and it's good to be just open about it. It helps the students feel better. So if they don't feel like, you know, if they can't, or if they can't focus or if they have to be absent, that it's a nurturing environment, in other words. So I want to thank you, um, Hector, on that. And let's welcome Belinda Maragan, because this is really the issue that she deals with all the time. And that is the impact of the trauma that's been inflicted on all levels of the school environment. And Belinda Maragan is a counselor for student discipline and expulsion in LAUSD. Now, that sounds harsh, but that's not really, you know, but she's worked for 22 years, first as a substitute teacher, then an elementary school teacher. Teacher and the school-based PSA, which is Pupil Student Attendance Counselor. And mm-hmm. as that kind of a counselor, Belinda works with students and she can speak, and I'm going to ask her to, to the trauma of the pandemic on students and staff. So welcome to the program, Belinda. Maybe you could begin with an overview of the mental health conditions of the pandemic that you're seeing because you see it on a broader basis, not yeah. just the students, but the staff and teachers and even the student families. Mm-hmm. Yes, thank you. Thank you, Susan, for having me. Thank you. Hello, everyone. Yes, yeah, so the impact that it's caused, and I think Mr. Hector pinpointed a lot of them, and he's there in the class with them. So what we're seeing is, yeah, a lot of anxiety, a lot of depression with our kids, mm-hmm. uh, working on readjusting to coming back in person. Yeah, and the attendance, which what Mr. Hector mentioned is the attendance. There's a lot of kids out. There's a lot of fear. There's anxiety coming back. They're afraid. Am I going to get sick? Am I not going to get sick? If I go, what's going to happen? Uncertainty. So there's a lot of that going on. As a, a counselor working with student discipline and, you know, talking to my colleagues at our PSA, school Bay PSA, that's the challenge is working with our families, working with the teachers. We see the burnout in the teachers because like Mr. Hector said, they're trying to educate the kids, teach the lesson, but then they're also trying to figure out these kids aren't all there, you know, mentally present because they're worried about, you know, some of them 
experienced homelessness during the pandemic because their parents lost their job. So it's like they're worrying about, am I going to have food when I go home? Where am I going to go home? So how are they going to be present with Mr. Hector's class when they're worrying about all these other things? And how are they going to make it to school? So those are some of the issues we're facing is like getting our kids back into the classroom. We're making a lot of, when we're working with them, teaching them how to cope with the issues that they're dealing with. We're making a lot of outside referrals. Outside agencies are also being bombarded as well because we're making so many referrals for our families, parents. Parents are coming into the schools asking for support for their kids. How can we help our kids come back to school? And then the other anxiety that they're also facing, Mr. Hector mentioned this too, is they've fallen behind. So mm-hmm. now it's like they're coming back in person, dealing with a pandemic, and not knowing that they're also behind. And that adds more to their anxiety, you know, which causes a depression, which causes them missing school and not coming to school and not coming to school. And so it's a lot. It's a lot. And that's what we're dealing with and supporting the teachers. Because so recently, these past three weeks, I was part of that group of employees that were deployed to support schools with the reopening this semester. Because, yeah, there's a lot of people out. There's a lot of teachers getting sick. TAs are out. So there's not enough subs. So I was covering classes. I was supporting with TK class. I covered a third grade class. And I saw the teachers, they're tired. They're exhausted. You know, we're all exhausted. You know, it takes a village to raise a child. Everyone's trying to do their part. I feel that, yeah, I think being short staff is a big impact. We need more full-time PSAs, PSWs at the schools to help to provide that support to teachers. I was going to ask you one question, too, because you mentioned that some students even have trouble getting to school. And I know there's a big issue now. Are they going to bring back more school buses and will they have, you know, drivers for the school buses? Is that the case that you're seeing that kids just can't get transportation or or it's just what is it? To me, my part is not the transportation is them actually physically being prepared to go back in person Mm. and dealing with whatever issues they're dealing with at home. That's getting them to get past that anxiety that they're going through or that depression. You know, they've been isolated for what a year. They were out, you know, away from other students and peers and getting back into that. Some of them are facing some difficulty with that. And that's where we're at to help them with those coping skills and helping them come back. And are you also seeing fallout from all of that anxiety, depression, fear? Are students acting out more? Are they more timid? I mean, are you seeing, because you, you know, I know you're in the uh, PSA, are, are there more fights or are kids more willing to work with each other and so happy to be with each other? What are you seeing? I see both. I see, uh, we're seeing it all. And it depends at, on the grade level. What I hear from teachers, what I see from, you know, the elementary level, kids are excited to be back, to be with their friends, hmm. to socialize because they miss that. And I know that what they're working with in the elementary level is the social skills. You know, because they missed it because they were at home. So I see that high school, the upper level, secondary, that's where we see them more. Yeah, we do. I, like I said, I work with student discipline with that unit. I'm the counselor that goes out and supports the kids once they're expelled. Yeah, we're seeing an, a, a raise in that, the behavior issues and working with that. So, yeah, we're impacted with that. Okay. And is there, are there any other issues that you want to bring up that perhaps any of the other teachers have brought up that you're seeing in terms of what the challenges are, both at the level of, I guess, of the educators and the students? 
I think I think everyone pretty much covered everything that we're facing. I think they covered it very well with everything that we the support that we need and everything that's going on in our schools. Yeah. Well, maybe it's time. I want to thank all of you for that. We, and we have a lot of time so we can go into a sort of back and forth. And Arlene, maybe you should open it up because I know you want to move into um, not just what the pressures are. I was going to ask separately, like, have all the schools been properly ventilated? Have they, you know, managed the facilities, upgrades that are required? I was speaking to Joel Jordan. He said that LAUSD is doing much better, for example, than, say, Oakland or San Francisco in almost every way? And and is that because UTLA has just been so uh, sophisticated in the way that they get, that they're effective in, in, in making certain that these things happen? Maybe you could start to address that and then we could go into, and each of you feel free to come in, you know, solutions. Yes, thank you for that, Susie. And I want to thank all my colleagues for sharing and really painting that picture and getting a sense yeah. of what it's like for students and staff. And yeah, it's really impactful. And I want to start out by just saying that, you know, we're talking about public education and public education is the foundation of our democracy. And it is so critical for every student to have a quality public school. And I know we're really trying hard because we we do have many needs in our school district. We and we have a majority of students of color. We have high poverty. And I'm really glad that we put so much effort into making sure that equity, racial justice, and the schools our students deserve is applied across the board. And so that's always been our goal. And as you could see, Everything is a lot more difficult and creating uh, people, you know, educators leaving the profession. Uh, But, you know, as you can see, there's resilience there. And everybody that I've talked to, every single person has said this is the hardest, the hardest year that they've ever experienced in public education. So yeah, lots of lots of love and kudos to our educators who are out in the trenches doing this work. And, you know, just getting back to your question about how we were able to win what we got in terms of health and safety. I believe that the fight that UTLA had, the strike we had in 2019, really built up the collective power that we have as a union and that our members really have made their voices known and heard what they need to be safe in our schools. Uh, We've had surveys where they've given input, and we've taken that input into the school district from the very beginning. And so we built an infrastructure from day one that other school districts don't have. And it included everything in terms of the mitigation strategies. But particularly, I want to, you know, that's been highlighted is the weekly mandatory COVID testing that's provided for all staff, all students, and also family members. I think that's been key. We have mobile vans that go to every school the same time each week that make it very easy to test. It's all 
down pat now. We've been doing it for so long. But we also had the school district also mandated vaccinations in 2021. And I think that was a very, very important move. Uh, We have like 99% of our staff vaccinated. And we have between 12-year-olds and up, we have over like 84% of students vaccinated. And there's a mandate for them as well that will be going into effect in the fall, but they've been pushed to do that. So it's the five to 12 year olds who are, there is no vaccine mandate at this time, but they're encouraged and their vaccination centers and the, they're able to easily access that. Plus masks are given out, including N95 masks, but for sure the the surgical type mask with the non-cloth mask with the nose Mm. piece that's provided at every school. We have MERV 13 filters. We have disinfection every night on our school campuses. You mentioned about busing. We have a process where the, the bus drivers have to check the daily pass. So every student, before they come to school, you know whether they have any symptoms because they have to check it. They have to get cleared. So we've thought of everything that we possibly could do to ensure that kids who come to school will be in a safe environment. It's not totally safe because you're never totally safe in a pandemic, but the safest possible. Yeah. I wanted to ask one question because a lot of you talked about, you know, attendance issues and there's declining enrollment and that's not just in the LASUSD, but everywhere. And that's got to be like studied, understood, you know, is it deeper than just the pandemic? Um, But yes, birth rate, birth rate's going down. We know that. (laughs) But I will also wondered, like, because there was an infusion of cash because of the CARES program, you know, that may have mitigated the ongoing funding issues in California with education that the strikes were all about, or at least partially about. So is there a problem there? I know we can only talk about LAUSD here, but I just wondered, like, you know, how are you? reconciling at the level of the union, because it sounds like the union is really, I should just interject that you, what you've confirmed is that the union cares about the kids and they care about education. It isn't just about their own narrow sectoral interests. And that's really, really nice to hear in this time when teachers unions have been so demonized. But I wonder just, you know, it sounds like you've taken care of all of these other issues, but how are you thinking about, you know, the problem of funding and declining enrollments. Well, I'm so glad you brought up funding, Susie, because LA Unified actually has $5 billion more. And we have more money than in the history of our school district right now. So we are actually building for our contract campaign. Every three years, we have a new contract. And so we've gotten input from our members at the school site on the critical issues that they're dealing with, that they want to see in a platform. And these are our broad goals that our bargaining proposals will come out of. And we're in the process of voting. The members will vote after it's been put together by our board of directors into a package. And so they will vote on where that money goes. There is $2.9 billion in the reserves. So there's more money that we intend to not just make our schools pre-pandemic level, which was inadequate, but we want to go beyond recovery. That's the name of our platform that goes beyond recovery. We want 
to infuse our schools. First of all, we, we all know that there are four principles. One is we need money for raises. We need compensation. We need to pay our teachers better. They need a big pay increase that's on the board. And then, by the way, not only teachers, we have educators as Belinda's a counselor, but we have nurses who mm-hmm. could get twice as much money working in the private sector than they do in the public school system. So that's why we need an infusion of money for all of our workers, including other unions within LA Unified in our classified our cafeteria workers, our bus drivers, they all need a raise as well. So we're calling upon that, but also our student learning conditions, which are our working conditions. And that includes lowering class sizes because we still have classes of 40 kids. We still have two large classrooms and it's very expensive to lower class sizes, but we need to do that. We need more staffing, as Belinda said, more counselors, more teachers across the board, uh, the need for staffing. Because again, all study has shown that personal relationship and the less students you have in a class makes a difference in terms of academic achievement, in terms of student success. I wanted to just let the others come in and talk about maybe what you think would make your classroom better. And, you know, and before in preparation for this talk today, I was looking at various things and it seems like there's a huge consensus around the country. Teachers need to be paid more and they also need to have the staff paid more, but they also need to provide more mental health services hire more support staff, as we've said, and then all of the other physical things. So I'm just wondering, you know, beyond that, like what in each of your experience do you think would really, really help? And and let's start with Georgia. We need joy in schools. I have spent more time writing donors choose grants in 2021 than I ever have because our kids came back after living through the most traumatic time in their lives. And I could not see bringing them back to an environment that looked just the same. So I wrote grants so that we could have, you know, an adjustable basketball court for my littles. So we could have trampolines. So that we could have ethnically diverse books in our classrooms. Shoot, I asked for Play-Doh because... Our curriculum says all these things should be part of the learning environment, but there is no funding for any of it, none of it. So every single time my kids need something, it comes out of my pocket or it comes out of my TA's pocket. And they make maybe a third of what I do, and yet they dig deep and they make trips to the dollar store, and none of that is okay. So, yeah, we need funding to provide the things that make school a joyful place for our students, whatever joy looks like developmentally for them at that point. We absolutely need it. Great. Thank you. And Hector, yes. I just want to jump right in because, yeah, a lot of what Georgia said with that joy, I mean, learning should be a fun place. Like school should be a place where learning is 
fun to do. And I think one of the things that, you know, I think this pandemic has exposed and then also the fact that we do have these funds now, right, with uh, LAUSD having over, you know, $20 billion, one of the things that I see is things like electives too, because, you know, that is something that usually when we do have budget cuts is one of the first things to go. And then we're just focused on just the four core subjects. Nothing wrong with that. I mean, I'm a history teacher, right? But, you know, our kids need more than that. And also just one of the things that I see a lot too is just the over-testing of our kids. Things like, you know, our public universities aren't even taking the SATs anymore, you know, as one of those acceptance requirements. So to me, it's like we have to look beyond, you know, these uh, standardized tests as well that take time away from things like, you know, social emotional learning. And I think really investing in another thing that I like about our Beyond the Recovery platform is looking at things that relate to enrichment activities and things of that sort that we could do with the other USD budget, especially with that increase. And that includes things like field trips. Some of my students in high school, you know, we were able to uh, go on a field trip last semester. And, you know, first of all, it was like a big hurdle even just to go on that trip, (laughs) field trip. And second of all, uh, it was literally like pulling teeth to get the budget, you know, to just to get the right source, the funding source for this. And, you know, many of our kids, after they we went on this uh, really, uh, you know, exciting trip that they took, were telling me, like, the last time I went on a field trip was in elementary. Yeah. So, you know, there's <laughs> like really enriching activities for some of our youth. And, you know, that, that also has to do with equity, right? When you have other places around the city where the uh, socioeconomic status is a lot more, and then you have places like here in the Northeast San Fernando Valley, and it's more of a working class neighborhood, and they don't have access to this, yet our school district has funds, you know? So it's kind of like, how do we do that? How do we increase, you know, access to different opportunities for our students? So I think doing things of that sort, we're really just enhanced education, just going back to making learning fun. And like what Georgia said, just to, you know, say one more time, like, yeah, we all have to have joy coming into the schools. And Belinda, what would you want to see? I love that. I love what both our teachers said. And I think that that will definitely help the mental health of our students because, yeah, they come to school and they're expected, like they were saying, like the test, the test, you need to pass this, you need to pass that, you need this amount of credits. And mind you, our kids have all these other issues that they have to deal with. And I love what they mentioned, bringing more extracurricular and enrichment to the schools, because at least if they don't have it at home, at least they have a place where there's consistency. Maybe there isn't consistency at home. You know, we don't know what's going on at home. Again, I'm going back to the counselor. We don't know what's going on at home. And sometimes stability is only at school where they could see if there's a pattern. Like they know they could go to school. They're going to see their teacher. They're going to have lunch. They're going to have breakfast. They're going to have pee. They're going to have this. There's, you know, there's a structure. And maybe at home they don't have that. So I think, yeah, bringing in enrichment, because maybe that's the only place they'll get it at, is at school, you know? Other thing I think would benefit the kids is having counselors at a school site full-time, because we're not, we're full-time, but not at a school. We're like, maybe have a school once a week, and then, okay, we'll see you next week. And then, you know, hold on to that thought, because I'll be back next week. You know, that's what PSAs deal with, you know, and sometimes they're half day assignments. It's like, what's a half day assignment? So I'm going to be at a school once every two weeks, you know, and, and we can't provide the services we really could 
if we were there full-time, five days a week, where the teachers could come to us and we could go to the teachers, we could do classroom observation. There's so much we could do, but when they spread us out so thin, it is difficult. It is difficult. So I think it's everything. What the teachers mentioned, the joy, the extracurricular, you know, having that at the school, the enrichment, having mental health services at the school available to our students, because once they go home, maybe they don't have somebody to talk to. Maybe they don't have someone they could trust and go to, you know? So having that at the school site would definitely help our our students all around. Thank you for that. I'm going to let Arlene kind of wrap up. We have maybe five minutes left, and it would be great to hear, because Arlene, you're in a prominent position within the UTLA, the United Teachers of Los Angeles, and it falls on the union often to fight for all of the issues that have been brought up. And I'm so glad that Belinda brought up the issue of stability, because that's the one thing we hear the most about. On the other hand, we often expect our schools to cure all the ailments of the society, but it really sounds like you're stepping up well, you know, and at least trying in in the worst of circumstances with such shortages. So Arlene, let's hear your final thoughts on this. Thank you, Susie. And again, where we are now, I've got to preface that it's, it's been years of organizing, specifically starting in 2014, where we made a clear decision as a union that we were going to have a vision and an agenda for the schools our students deserve. So we put that out and our members have really supported that. They wanted a fighting union. We also said we have to fight privatization and that is a goal and a need. I mean, our members even voted to increase their own dues by 30% to build up the infrastructure, hire more staff. So we have organizers on staff and we have a top-notch communications and research department. It's all integrated together with our bargaining. We have all these pieces. So we've developed our union and especially the structure at the school site, getting a chapter chair at every school site and making sure we have contract action teams. We call them cats at every school site. And so that we have member input, member engagement. And I think that's key because a union has to reflect the member voices. And we're a democratic union and we need to keep moving along with our members. And I'm so amazed that, you know, we've been able to do so much together, but it shows the the power of, you know, the of the escalating actions that we've taken and of building more and more unity. So there's hope. There's hope within our union because as you heard from the educators on this panel, they know what those issues are. They feel it every day and they experience it and they're willing to fight. They're willing to fight to get that joy back into our schools. They're willing to fight to get more money to change the funding system in our schools so that we can have the resources we need. No teacher should have to go into their pocket or teacher's assistants who make even less to just provide those simple things that will make a difference in our classrooms. So we believe strongly that the union needs to be about our communities. We didn't even mention the community schools. I know. That we have one, we won from the strike. That's our vision for what schools can be. 
And it's a democratic decision-making process within the school site with parents, community, students, ethnic studies. It's what the schools can be according to the what the needs of the students and family and communities are. So we have a whole movement of community schools, and we're excited about it. People are, even within the pandemic, we have educators really excited about these the changes we're making and the changes we're going to make in the next year, two years, as we move forward through moving forward through the the bargaining for beyond recovery. Well, I want to thank all of you for joining. I can't tell you how excited I am about this panel. And it was really good to hear from every level of the process from K to 12 and the staff and the parents and everything else. And to pull it all together so neatly, uh, Arlene Inouye, as you just have, because you both outlined the hope and the joy, but the struggle ahead uh, in order to make all of these things realizable and let LAUSD and UTLA be a beacon, I guess, in a way, um, you know, for other school districts to follow. And I have to finally just say, you've all confirmed what I already know. Teachers are heroes. Arlene in New York, Georgia, Flowers Lee, Hector Perez Roman, and Belinda Barragan. I want to thank all of you for the work you do and for what you brought to our program today. Thanks for being with us today on Jacobin Radio. Thank you, Susie. Thank you. Thank you.